Okay, so hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with actor, musician, writer and stand-up comedian. It's Jim Tavare. So, hey, Jim, thanks for chatting with me today. Hello. I'm absolutely fine. We're greetings from sunny California. It's all right for some. We've been, okay. Well, uh, it, lately we've been dealing with massive heavy rainfall here. Uh, so, and then before that we had a drought. So we've got droughts, we've got rain, we've got uh, floods, fire, uh, earthquake. <laughs> and if, if that doesn't get you, you get abducted by aliens. Um, <laughs> It's like end of days, isn't it? You know. <laughs> I live in um, Tahunga, California. Yeah. Um, on the very edge of Los Angeles, and um, it's very, very mountainous, and the train is uh, uh, very sort of um, atmospheric, if you like. It, it, it looks like Mars, and I think that's my theory. Why in the 1950s a bunch of people here claimed to be abducted by aliens. And some of them still live here, and they still insist they were abducted <laughs> by. Anyway, that's why I got the house cheap. <laughs> well, okay. So I usually start by going back in time. You're from Essex originally, and then you moved up north when you were when you were quite young, about about seven seven years old. Um, wow. so what, what was young Jim like? I'm, I'm kind of picturing you as as quite quiet. Uh, yeah, that's a, I haven't thought that far back too much. Um, you're talking about, yeah, I lived in uh, a place called Mount Nessing in Essex uh, near Shenfield. And uh, it was just a pretty normal existence. We had a nice house and my dad was a businessman. And, um, and I had these older brothers, much, much older. And uh, I would never see them. So they, they were so much older. So I felt like it was pretty much like a an only child, really. Um, and then it, when I was six or seven, uh, Dad's job moved to Manchester and we moved to a town called Macclesfield and I spent the next uh, 15 years uh, in Macclesfield, really. With a with an Essex, Essex accent. Exactly, that's the problem. So if you take an Essex accent up to uh, Macclesfield, yeah. You get your head kicked in pretty much every day. <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> laugh, really. <laughs> so, I mean, well, were, you, were you outgoing? Were you a bit of a joiner? Or do you kind of keep yourself to yourself? No, I, I wasn't outgoing. I wouldn't call it outgoing, but I was a sort of clown fool, uh, you know. I, but And I quickly learned to... It's classic comedy background, I suppose. You know, you le learn to, uh, uh, you know, avoid the... the uh, the aggression by, uh, you know, deflecting, sort of just being stupid and trying to get laughs in the playground. But uh, the worst thing was the, the school bus trip right. for me. I, de I definitely would get uh, pummeled every time I walked down the steps. To get out. So that was how I took up the bass. I don't, you know, I'm a bass player. I do, indeed. Perhaps, uh, double bass. And, and, and so I was able to take up the instrument at school and avoid the bus trip uh so my mother would have to meet me at the gates instead <laughs> annoy her because you have to work but um and then i uh, so and, and i've avoided all the bullying after that yeah so i mean the double bass was it and was it like a natural fit for you was it like i can't imagine that you chose it purely to 
to keep yourself off the off the bus in the morning? I think I was slightly showing off by taking it up. I think no one else wanted it. You know, it was the, there's the music covered at school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a, a rusty uh, trumpet in there and some <laughs> other rusty brass instruments. And there was this old bass. And I thought, I think I'll just take that. And then at least people will come up to me and talk to me or something. Um, so I, I took that up. And, um, and, but it, it fitted in because around the age of 15-ish, I got into rockabilly yeah. and, um, and and then I became, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a bass player in a rockabilly band. Yeah. So, I mean, what was, what was the aspirations? What was your, your dreams as a kid? What did you, you know, you hit with hear the old, you know, fireman and doctor and all that kind of stuff. What was the dream? Was there something you particularly wanted to be when you left school? So, um, well, when I left school, all I think I, all I wanted to do was because I was a purist, you know, rockabilly kind of early Elvis fan sort of person, um, almost to the point of obsession, I would say. Uh, I just wanted to have a, a boring job where I could just earn a bit of money and then buy records with. And that's pretty much what I did for about a year or two after leaving school. And then I, I realised I had completely wasted, you know, half my education, not not trying hard enough and I had wasted uh, my appreciation of music I think uh, I, so the whole music things passed me by because I was just into Gene Vincent and Elvis and stuff so I missed out on the 70s and 80s which is obviously a really important time in music but that's what I wanted to do I just wanted to keep my head down and um, because I've got this terrible job in a my first job was leaving schools working in a haulage company uh, stacking boxes, you know, when the trucks came in, I would pile these things up and up. And my nickname was Gonzo because I used to come up with ideas how to get boxes stacked in a tight space. Um, and so I did for about about eight months or something. And then um, it was pretty horrible. And I, I had to escape from that place. Uh, with one of the one of the trucks came in one day, and I just asked for a, a ride with the guy. I just never went. <laughs> And uh, and I remember one of the conversations I had that the, the uh, foreman at the time was uh, you know he he, so he pushed me around a bit and in fact they locked me in a container overnight once with a load of chocolate biscuits um, you know things like that it was ridiculous and I, um, <laughs> uh, but he said and I, and I told him so well, I'm going to be famous one day obviously he said are oh, you Gonzo you'll be back you'll be back Gonzo also <laughs> I'm gone back then I, th I looked up recently and the company's not there anymore oh so. god <laughs> <laughs> that was payback bit of karma bit of karma came around so we like were you, were you musical from a young age obviously taking up the, the double bass well I had a I think if I'm honest I had a little bit of a musical ear slight musical ear but I didn't really know what to do with it I had this auntie auntie Mary who was brilliant and she could play the harmonica and would just pick out a tune. She would do the. She wouldn't play blues. She would simply pick out the tune, the whole tune of any like "God Save the Queen" or something. And I was always fascinated by that. But she didn't read music or anything. Then I do have a grandmother who went to Royal College of Music, who was a violinist, but again didn't really do anything with it. Um, I have a grandfather, Leon, who was an actor with the Royal Shakespeare Company. So when he came out of World War One as a machine gunner. He was. He just became an actor straight away, and he was at Stratford. Um, I think he was in a play with Charles Lawton. Wow. So that's our only showbiz connection in the family. But then his wife, the violinist, I was telling about, didn't want him to do that because there was no uh, future for anyone doing yeah, that. Yeah. So 
he became a salesman and he was really unhappy and he spoke many different languages. He was an interpreter and he just hated his job and he just lived in books all the time. Um, uh, it's kind of sad, really. Yeah, no, it's obviously in the genes. Do you know, I might have skipped a couple of generations, but it's nice <laughs> to know that it's <laughs> it's there. It's, it, you know, there's a bit of a history in your family of uh, musically. Um, yeah, so I'm not great. What well, haven't been great at mainstream education. I think that's my thing. So that's the point I made about listening to music. And um, so, in other words, I had these at school. I think I had some comedic uh, sort of um, instinct, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I had a bit of music, and I sort of thought, well, I wonder if I could do anything with this. But I hadn't got a clue what to do. I hadn't got a clue how to be in showbiz. And I, mm. I met the odd actor or something in a pub, and I was absolutely fascinated. And they always said to me, oh, don't do this. Um, yeah. and, 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 but it doesn't put you off, does it, when you're you know, 20 or something? You just keep going. Um, that's the great thing about being young. Yeah. Um, You've got to have uh, that drive, though, haven't you? Do you know what I mean? Like, your careers advisor is not going to say, oh, yeah, you know, go and, you know, act or whatever. They, they want you to work in Sainsbury's or somewhere, don't they, you know? More, more or less. I think that's the system. It's even worse now, is it, for the young kids? I've got children, they... You feel that they're being pushed into these kind of vocational things they don't want yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah. But my, I had a careers, one of these careers test things, when I think when I was 16 or something, went down to London and did this test all day. And I I had, I had, came out as a window dresser. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, since then, I've, I went back and I, I did a few, like I did uh, French GCSE. I, keep going, I kept going back all the time doing yeah. yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't say I regret it, but um, I had a similar experience when I eventually did get to audition for RADA, and that, that's a whole other leap forward. Mm. But right now, I mean, yeah, I was in Macclesfield, just kind of surviving, I suppose. Um, uh, and then I, I think I realised I had to move to London somehow to just get involved in things, because even I knew that was uh, the way to do it. Um, yeah. Certainly, Macclesfield wasn't really offering what I needed. No, you've got, got to go where the you know where the industry is, I suppose, isn't you know? It, well, then it wasn't industry. It was just trying to meet like-minded people. So yeah. I did get yeah. eighteen and went moved down there, and I just couldn't believe it. You know, it was just a um, so I, I had a little a cassette tape of a couple of songs I recorded with my bandmates. So we had a rockabilly band called I think it's called Rigamortis, and. Um, <laughs> I mean, had a really good guitar player who was a really good musician in Macclesfield, Roger, and he uh, had kids uh, and he didn't want to do much. He didn't want to go on tour or anything with us. Yeah, and then yeah, he was yeah. subsequently offered to play with New Order and he turned that down because he had young kids. So, um, But we got him for a few sessions and um, he was just fantastic. And I took this tape down to London and the, the uh, uh, A&R man said... Uh, we like what you do and you play well together, but you need more material. Yeah. But it, the job was done. I, it got me to London. I literally never went back. I just stayed down there and I got a job, I think, on a building site. And so I was like, it worked at a job agency where you just, you know, you do different things each day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love it. And then it was the whole squatting culture was a thing, you know, in the early 80s. Um, and it was just accepted that you could, as long as you look after these homes, you could stay in them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple of those and it was very cheap and I just couldn't believe um, the, the, the whole it just opened massive doors for me uh, and I was in uh, got quickly involved in 
sort of little theater groups and um uh you know i think there was a white even a white it's called youth opportunity youth opportunities oh, yeah yes why yes i did theater in that as that and then later on i did um the thing the upgrade from yts was called what was it um uh, where they give you like uh, 60 quid a week, whatever it was, to run your own business. Right. I did that as a writer a, a, a few years later, and that was actually really, really useful. Um, and I was in the, in, in the class in London, and there are a few other comics in it and one or two writers. Uh, and, and, and you have to lay out a business plan. And, you know, so I, I wrote how many gigs I expected to get. And I, might, I thought I might get a TV spot you know, down the line. I wrote that on the chart and so on. Uh, and then you can visualise yeah. what's going to happen, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you, you could have ended up as a, as a musician, let's say, or, you know, in an orchestra or something with a double bass or anything. But you, you ended up in art school. Um, but I mean, so what was the, had you always been arty? Was the art school, did you do the art school thing for a reason? No, the art school was just uh, so yeah. I left school and hung around for, for for a bit. Worked in the haulage company. And then I, I really thought I've got to go. You know, I've got to do, go back to college. And I thought well, maybe art. You know, mm. so I had a had a slight skill with that, not much really. And um, uh, I, I think, if I'm honest, I think my I recall at the time a friend who was also an artist. He he slipped one or two of his paintings in my folder. And so I went with his work to <laughs> art school. I, I really, I didn't stick it for more than a term. Um, but the one thing I did enjoy about that was they had a thing called multimedia. Yeah. Uh, where you go into the studio, which they had at the art school, and you mess around with cameras. And I was like a newsreader for the day or something. I absolutely loved it and mm. realised that, that this, this is definitely something I could do. Uh, with my, you know, with my instincts, it, it, it was absolutely perfect. Man, I was yeah. delighted. And then I written I, that pretty much did it for me. And I was, I was, try, I just tried to get to London as hard as I could. I, I had, so there was two opportunities. One was going to be a plumber's mate, and I got, I got turned down for that. Uh, to you know, in order to come to London, I think that was going to be in St Albans. But the other thing I tried to do was to make violins at college. Oh, so I was going to be a violin maker. And I, I did, and I actually quite was quite a bit of woodwork, which I still am very, very keen on. Um, so I thought that would have been interesting. Uh, I, I can't remember if I was turned down, but I did come down and have a couple of meetings with this college. I didn't, that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and eventually I just got on the train and went. Yeah. No, but it all worked out, didn't it? You know, you ended up auditioning for RADA and you got in. So, I mean, you know, yes. I suppose that was the kind of, you know, the, the, the light, light bulb moment that when things kind of switched over. Yeah, but it's not always, it doesn't always lead to the place you think, does it? Yeah. And you know, other yeah. things do. So I've always said my life is a lot more interesting than my act. Uh, you know, some of you might agree with that. But the, the, the RADA thing did seem really interesting. And so I was hanging around in the, one summer down in London and I was in a theatre group and then that finished. And then I got into a film as an extra mm. and the film was called Another Country. Um, with Rupert Everett, and I ended up being Colin Firth standing for six weeks, and uh, also in the film was like a regular sort of public school boy. They had me as that, and on that film, I actually met some really good friends that I was, that became friends with still. And one of those people was uh, Charlie Spencer, who was Princess Diana's brother, mm. and um, 
I became quite friends with him and I went to his birthday and I'd go to his house and meet Diana on a, on a few times. And then later on, I did Raw Varieties, met her again. And I don't think she remembered me at that point. But um, uh, but the point about extra work, it was actually very important for me that and mm. after I had my accident uh, in 2017, I actually did a bit because I thought, what am, what am I going to do with my life? And I, uh, But if your listeners don't know, I had a serious accident in 2017, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, so it gave me something to do, really. But yeah, so so after that movie called Another Country, I um, gave me a bit of confidence to audition for RADA. And yeah. that was the first place I auditioned for. And, and I wrote a script myself. Like, like I think I was in the theatre group kind of comedy show thing at the time. And I submitted that as my audition. And they just thought I was this interesting person that wrote his own things. And it yeah, really yeah. was just a fluke. And I since met one of the directors there who said they didn't want me in there there's just one person wanting me out of the four uh, and the one person wanted me was the principal of the college so that helps, <laughs> <laughs> helps. you've got to you've got to start somewhere haven't you you've got to you know t- sort of just cut your teeth by you know doing some a few little parts and get yourself kind of get your name out there as well I suppose um yeah yeah but you think you've made the big time if you audition for Rada or you get into it. I did get in. I can't believe it. And um, but, it, but it turned out to be, I wouldn't say it completely suited me. It was very kind of strict. Um, and they'd have these, you know, voice exercises every day. And there was a lot of ballet. You had to, literally had to do ballet in tights and all this kind of thing. And it oh just didn't me too much. Yeah. And, and I think I would have perhaps, in hindsight, rather done something more you know, involving writing. Yeah, uh, yeah. To get those disciplines, you know. Um, and I, in a way, I feel that it was a wasted opportunity, but then you can't fully say that, can you? Because, you know, it, it leads to other things. Mm. You don't know why. Even networking. I mean, I mean, RADA must be an amazing place to network. Do you know what I mean? Purely for well, the, the names that have been through there. Even that, Paula, that didn't work for me because I was too out of, I was too left field out of the right, box. Right, right. Yeah, uh, it wasn't clear what, where I would fit in at all, um, and and I think I knew that, so I couldn't really get an agent or anything. They didn't know they didn't know what to do with me, and then mm. uh, so I did get a job. I think when I left, and it was in a pantomime in a regional theatre, and I played the bass in the orchestra pit. I remember, and I had to do little characters in the show, and also do stage management, like running on and running off and. Uh, and then, so the show would start and I'd be in this big tree and I'd be pulling a cord inside the tree that made a squirrel run up the tree. And I thought, I cannot do this for another day. And I did finish the pantomime. And then I thought, I'm never going to do acting again. It just doesn't suit me at all. That's what I thought at the time. And and I thought, I'm just going to go and do comedy. I want to do stand-up comedy. That's what I want to do. But again, I didn't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but previously, someone had said to me in one of those theatre group things, oh, you should think about going to the comedy store and mm. doing your monologues at the um, comedy store. Because in this theatre group, I, my bit was the monologue at the end, in the middle or something, the comedy bit. And I thought, maybe there's something I can do with this. And they said, go and have a look at the comedy store. So I went straight there when I came back from this pantomime. But it was shut for refurbishment. <laughs> and they they'd shut it down and they'd moved, in fact. So it was the old comedy store and I can't remember it was like a strip club in Dean Street or something don't don't quote me on that but it was 
but it wasn't there anymore. Right. And I found out where it was, and then I went there, and they were refurbishing, ready for the big opening. So I waited a bit, and then that was the beginning of the comedy store at the Leicester Square. Mm. Uh, we all remember that was again mid eighties, wasn't it? Yeah. But 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 so that's a whole other thing. Trying to get in there. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I mean, there's a lot of open mics and stuff, isn't there? You know, a lot of people are kind of discovered by just getting themselves up on a stage. I mean, you know, you've got your comedy, you have a very distinctive look on stage. Um, so, I mean, what, what was the catalyst of you deciding you were, you were going to put the, put the bass, put the double bass into your act? Yeah. How did that happen? Super question. So, um, so I got back to, to, to doing stand-up. That's what I, I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. So I, I went around the clubs uh, and there were, weren't many, probably half a dozen, ten. Uh, there was, um, but, but so I started doing these clubs. And I really was one of the, the worst comedian on the circuit for ages. And then um, Up the Creek was one of the early clubs, but it mm. wasn't called Up. Was it called Up the Creek? The, the, the Tunnel Palladium, it was called, um, in Rotherhithe Tunnel. The Mitre, it was a real tough place. But they had a thing on Sunday where you, yeah, you're exactly right, like you said, open mic, you just get up. Um, and, and what happened to me, I went down there, Malcolm Hardy was the host, and he quickly recognised that I, I was good, uh, kind of good value for being heckled off. Um, and uh, and then he, he created this thing called uh, this the Get Jim Tavaray Off Spot in 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, so I did this every Sunday, and I tried to survive more than 30 seconds. Um and then uh, I kept doing that, uh, you know, and I'd go around the, the, the comedy clubs. I had a tiny guitar like this, like around my neck, and I can't remember what I did, uh, little silly bits and bobs. And then, um, but what I didn't realise, I think at the time, was comedy, I thought comedy was like you sit at home in the day and, and maybe think of some funny ideas to yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, and then you go on and just do it on the stage. And I was, or I just get up and hope something would come. And I quickly realised that's not how it works. And you have to have a script. But no one told me this. Who said that? So, um, and then even in those terrible gigs, you know, and I probably didn't ever get to do more than five minutes. There was one tiny bit of that gig that I would retain as a hopeful sort of little thing that I could latch on to. And, and that would just thrill me with enthusiasm for the next time. I was going to make that bit, I'll do that bit again and maybe add something around it. And that, yeah, you know, that yeah. sort of forced into thinking then actually you do have to have a script. Uh, and then so cut, jump forward maybe a year and a half, two years, I think I was the worst comedian on the circuit. And there was a, when are you going to give up? And some other things. Um, uh, then I was, I had the base in my, squat i think it was at the time and it was in the corner it was i always just fiddle with it and i enjoyed it played a bit with people if they wanted and, mm, yeah uh, i thought hey, i wonder if, it, if i could just maybe use that in the, the show you know um so i took the bass along to a gig um and i did pretty much exactly the same jokes which weren't really working before but with a bass and suddenly the jokes worked and i can't tell you now why that was Although I was, I would assume it's because you walk on an instrument, they think you're going to play it at least at the end and do something. Yeah. So yeah. there was always this sort of um, this feeling from the audience, oh, he's going, to, he's going to play this thing, and I would stand there with it, never mention it, and never play it. <laughs> uh, 
and I think the first joke I got was the joke which I got was um I'd I'd sing everybody's going surfing and then bottom and and that was like the first and then I so I do that right at the very end and then I'd say all the way here with a double bass for one joke good night. <laughs> And, and 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 I thought so that kind of worked, and then I I did get some did get booked a little bit, and I had to come back. And I had to do twenty minutes, and it just felt so long coming yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Do twenty minutes. Oh my goodness! Uh, but then I, I probably just about managed it. And then what I did, I had a. Uh, I remember distinctly what what happened next was, I got a five minute gig for a. Um, some charity thing the, in a little venue in Highgate called mm-hmm. the Highgate Community Arts Centre. It's, it's where a lot of comedy started. It's Jackson's Lane was called, I think, Community Centre. And um, and so I, and I thought I'd put the tuxedo. I got. I went to Oxfam, bought a tuxedo, and I, I thought well, maybe I could be like a reject from the Philharmonic. Um, so I got the white tie and the, the tuxedo. And I did exactly the same jokes as before. I think I had one Beethoven joke that I kind of used. Um, and I'd still do the Jaws thing at the end. And and it, it, I'm not joking, Paul, it, it transformed it 50 yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it totally clicked. And, and, and I thought, my God, and it blew me away in my own. Uh, I thought this is this, definitely that's it. And uh, and it totally worked for me. And and then I, I rapidly got like a manager, I think it was Avalon, uh, and then I was in I was, I was in, in Edinburgh Festival, mm. and my first show was called Jim Tabaret the early years, and I was photographed like with the bass round like a guitar, like Elvis, and that was obviously the Elvis bits coming through, and then I, I then that was it. Then I, I had a I had sort of pretty much had a persona that I could, and it became very dry. It was very deadpan, and I used to like comedians at the time. I don't know if you know Arnold Brown and yeah, Michael hey. Redmond was. Both a good friend, and I always looked up to both of those people. And then people like um, Stephen Wright would come from the US, and mm. they'd come to um, London, and Jackie Mason, mm. uh, Stephen Wright, Emo Phillips. Yeah. And so I, I got, I really like these loaded one-liners, and that was the thing that I absolutely thought was incredible. And, and so I think it was Michael telling me that you know sometimes he changes his lines around when he literally changes one word. And I thought this is the type of comedy I like a lot, and um, and then I became slowly realizing that if I could just you know come up with a few one-liners, I could pedal my one-liners around the circuit. Yeah, no, but it's about finding that niche, isn't it? You know, you were doing what very few people were doing at the time. You were very kind of very distinctive. Your act was very distinctive. You know, you'd remember seeing you. Nice. Yeah, I was aware of because I'm from a theatre background. I was aware of the the theatrics of it, uh, so the, the the visual thing. Uh, so I like the theatre, and I, hmm. I could combine all the elements. Yeah, exactly. The, the music, you know, if you can do a little few bits, you can get through a nasty audience by you know playing a bit, and you and you, you can find and it was all it was all um, combative in those days. The audiences are. Lots and lots of heckling, very creative heckling. So that's when I used to get things like, you know, dwarf with a violin, you know, when I walked on. Is that <laughs> I can't even say that, but um, I'd get, um, you know, and, and some some of these heckles I got, I'd even like worked into my act as part of my routine. 
like the things people would call out at me. And then I'd started to do material about how difficult it was traveling on the tube and uh, how I get abuse, you know, getting on the train with it. And, and that became the act, really. And it was really a case of uh, talking about what you know about, you know. That's the first thing I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A comedy teacher would tell you is, is uh, talk about what you know. Yeah, you know, getting a bit getting, of a thick skin as well, I suppose. Or definitely getting a thick skin. But um, at the time, it was there was a lot of people doing jokes about Margaret Thatcher, and she was in. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So uh, I was able to do completely the opposite and almost piggyback and kind of hitchhike on on the back of what they were doing because it didn't suit me at all being political. Mm. Uh, and again, Mike Redmond and Arnold weren't political, so they were my go-to kind of people. Yeah, no, Michael's lovely. He's been, he was on the podcast a little while back. He's just he's, oh, such, yeah, yeah. he's such a lovely, lovely guy. He's he's so funny. absolutely. So you you moved you ended up moving to LA as you said earlier. So why LA? Was it just more opportunities or what was the was there any kind well, of LA came you? about? Well, uh, so LA came about in two thousand eight. Um, hmm. we, we have to just go back a bit because um, so then when I established my app at the base and then yeah, I yeah. Got managed. And then I had to kind of come up with a new show every year for Edinburgh. And I did get into the swing a bit. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to write as much as I could. And if I'm honest, I couldn't write enough. Uh, and then I did get, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't come up with enough, stu enough yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the early 90s, I was doing shows in the US as well. So I do, like I did Star Search and I did... Right, right. Um, uh, there's international star search right which i think i won that one uh, it was a smaller version and then i did you know bud friedman's evening at the improv and caroline's comedy half hour and and i went to uh Mon montreal comedy festival mm. and then from that was very interesting because when i did my show there and it was it was a year when jim carrey was just kind of quite new to it sam kinnison was on yeah that year. yeah uh, it was just very, very heady days. And there was me, Jack D. Chris Lynham was, was on that year, I think. I did two years in a row. But anyway, um, I did get booked for a show in, in uh, on Paramount called, uh, I think it was Paramount or CBS, I can't remember, uh, called Wings, which was the, created by the producers of Cheers. Mm. They, um, the, the, they had a sitcom at the time, and one of the characters in it played cello as, a, as an amateur. And one week she uh, decides she wants to try and do comedy with her cello. And she goes to the local comedy club. Uh, and when she gets there, there's already this uh, gangly <laughs> Brit doing it with the bass. Yeah, yeah. She sees him. I, she thinks, oh, I'm not doing this. And she walk, leaves. But I do my act in that for three or four minutes. And uh, it got me a couple of gigs in America. But obviously that was the, the 90s and it was very, very good time for comedy mm. uh, in the UK. So I, I, I turned a lot of stuff down in the US. I just thought, no, I'm going to, I've got good management in the UK and um, they were getting me work. You know, I was on tour all the time uh, doing universities and little theatres. And, um, and then I started getting TV spots, you know, Des O'Connor and these kind of shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then I, and right the way through the 90s, I did three Royal Varieties. Uh, and they're, they're great for you. That was way better doing that than anything I could have done in America for me, I think. So doing the Royal Varieties, then that was guaranteed. 
you know, you could pretty much make a living um, on, on that. It's not the same nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, huge exposure on the varieties back in the day. Yeah, and just now it's just like a sort of a shop window for what you're doing. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's not like it was. Um, uh, uh, yeah, no, I turned things down in America. I thought, well, no, I'm, I could have come here, and I said, thought, no, that might have been the wrong choice. But um, I was really enjoying England. I was married then, and I started having kids later in the 90s, early 2000s, late 90s. So I had to, I had to make a living, and I got into these, this corporate thing, and I got into doing um, uh, comedy clubs. Like the comedy store was always there, and so yeah, no. So uh, all the way through the nineties, and I did. I was really enjoying comedy. And, and if I'm honest, I, I got a little bit burnt out. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I, and I just keep. I kept doing these jonglers and all these things, and and I lost a bit of creativity, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I do corporate entertainment. I was doing a lot of those, and and I think. Uh, I lost some of my creativity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no doubt. Um, yeah. Oh no, you want to keep it interesting for yourself, is it? There's, there's, there's no point doing something if you're if you're just going through the motions for the you know for the hell of it. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't phoning in completely, and I did enjoy the gigs. Um, so, I mean, you obviously it's like it must have been nice to kind of dip in your toe. You'd kind of dip your toe into America, so you kind of knew what the the lie of the land was over there. But I mean, it's a big, you know, it's no big you know decision is it to to think on up sticks and you know move however many it's miles. something i've always thought about i i could have come here and I, i've always been very very fond of the place my brother's lived here for 30 years he's academic mm. i've stayed with him and he's in los angeles you know i was very familiar with the place and uh, plenty of friends and uh, by then i knew emo phillips he was a good friend and uh, I, I thought i thought well i could you know just hopefully slip over there seamlessly one day. I did, I, I'm not sure, but it was all going quite well. And then I just forgot about America. I just never thought about it again, really. And I did get some great things. I did um, had a TV show in 95, like a six-parter on BBC Two, which was me and the bass. Sort of the bass would come to life and it would be a different story each week with the bass. And it was almost like a, I wouldn't say kid's show, but it was, um, there were silent movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, almost like like a Harry Hill style mm. uh, outing, and um, you know, I wouldn't say it was huge or anything, but it was just nice to be doing stuff at home, um, and then back on tour again. And I think it was '98. I did get a TV show of my own on Channel Five, one of the first comedy shows on Channel Five, and it was very very low budget, very hit and miss affair. Um, people were pitching in stuff for me to do, and it was just trying out stuff really. On yeah, late yeah. night TV, Channel Five, and um, it was a great chance to do something. Um, by then, I'd I was so I'd have a little bit when I do my bass, uh, you know, like a stand-up bit in it, and that, actually that was the least that's the least strong bit in it, and it didn't come over very well because it looked very cheap. So when you do the Royal Variety Show, that might look good in that. So I was there with the tuxedo, the, the double bass, and. Uh, but then on a little kind of late night TV show, that really didn't work. Um, and, but what did turn out quite well was the sketch stuff, and which I enjoyed doing. And um, uh, the sketches came over better than the stand-up. And I realised I could, maybe that's something I could do in the future, because mm. I was thinking about, I can't, maybe I can't do my bass forever. I'm not sure. Um, and then, so I did that show, and there was lots of sketch involved. 
and then I dropped my bass. And so for a couple of years, I decided to do something completely different. And I just, whenever I was out doing comedy, I'd only just uh, compare or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. I do short bits. I have Jim Tavern Friends kind of show, you know, uh, to see what happened if I could make something else um, up. And um, so I just had a rest from it. And, and then the show was on. And then after that show, uh, the sketch show came around, which was a very, very big show. And I was in New Zealand at the time on tour. And I got this call from Baby Cow, which is Steve Coogan's yeah, company. Yeah. And Henry Normal spoke to me and said, do you want to do this sketch show? Um, we've seen your tape of your Channel 5 thing, uh, an edited tape of all the sketches. Wow. And they, they liked that and they thought I could contribute to this sketch thing, either as a writer or performer. So I thought, yeah, I'd love to be involved in that. And um, and they had me as in it then. And um, so it was me, Lee Mack, Tim Vine, Karen Taylor, Ronnie Ancona. And uh, we put together this show, many, many sketches. I think it was 25 sketches every half hour episode. It wasn't as many as the fast show, but we were around that time just after, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we would, and that became quite a successful show. And we won the BAFTA award for that, the production BAFTA for sketch show. So we all got a, a little trophy. Um, uh, and that was really on the back of that Channel 5 show. That's how I got that. And, and then on the back of that, I got Harry Potter. Mm. Uh, that really was me back to acting again. It's like full yeah. circle. And um, uh, that 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 Harry Potter thing was a life changer, I'd say. Even though it was a, I was on screen for no more than three or four minutes. That's the thing. Uh, I mean, are you? Do you get still get? I'm I'm assuming that you must still get recognised. No, never get recognised, Paula, because that that movie. I had a I had a great big hump on my back. <laughs> <laughs> Teeth, uh, uh, pointy ears. Oh, uh, you know, fans these days, though, you know, a bit of bit of prosthetic is not going to stop them. Plenty <laughs> of prosthetics. Um, uh, never reckon, never, not once. But um, it was definitely a good calling card to have. Uh, however, nothing really happened with that. And I think I did a music video and one other movie after that. Uh, it didn't seem like much was going on. So I just thought, forgot about it and went back to stand-up again. Mm. And by then, I think I was doing the bass again because I really didn't have much left you know so if i did a corporate i would definitely use the bass because that's what i was known for right? yeah 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 you know i did have a break from it but it, but um and people would say oh you, it's time you got rid of your bass but i think they're all wrong actually and i think now i'm in my late 50s mm. the bass yeah. is something i've always had and i'm glad i have still got it to be honest uh, it's not the not the very original one i've had about seven but um i i, I am glad i still have the bass and i and that's what I'm known for here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. After all these years, so I'm known in the states as the comic with the bass. Um, you could argue it could hold you back a bit. Maybe it does, but um, you know, I've always liked those old variety kind of guys, like Jack Benny. I love love more from Wise, Tommy Cooper, to Ronnie's Dick Emery. But I like I like the you know the guy that's always does the same thing on stage maybe not the same material but the same image you know yeah yeah, uh, yeah. you know in the successful way the pub landlord is you know a persona mm. uh, and i had a persona that, that i should i you know if you if you create you may as well stick with it yeah i mean what's the point in reinventing yourself you know when it you know it could might not be as successful what if it ain't broke don't fix it do you know what i mean 
Well, you know, I think management at the time would say, what are you going to do in Edinburgh next year? But I can't, my act wasn't the type of thing that I could just suddenly just do a whole something else with a, a whole other persona. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, no, exactly. right? and, it doesn't make sense. I did stop doing Edinburgh, really, because uh, A, it was too expensive. <laughs> and um, B, I, I didn't have anything to say anymore. And I, did, I, I, I think I'm done with that, really. So, um, uh, you know, I was always, maybe I thought one day I would, you know, create another play or something or mm. something completely, which eventually I did do after I had this terrible accident. I did do a show about that. But um, anyway, that aside, uh, so yeah, I was in, the, it became, it got up to 2004 mm. or something like that. I'd done Harry Potter and then, uh, and then back on tour. And then around 2007 or 2008, um, I got the chance to come to the States again, and this is a second chance. It was with a show called Last Comic Standing, mm. um, which a reality show for comics, that, and you live in the house, and you compete compete in the local comedy club, and you get eliminated each week and so on. So I had nothing to lose, and I thought, yeah, well, yeah. I, I love America, and I know how to play America. I did it I always, when I come and do gigs, I always did it less deadpan, lot more energy and assertive you know that's basically i think the difference uh but the jokes are still the same and um and i found that work for me over here and uh i finished fourth in last comment standing and the, and the top five go on the tour of uh, the world tours they call it it was the last comment standing world tour and it was all 50 states oh my god <laughs> but in fact it was about 40 states in the end but um so we did that for eight months or something, wow. uh, grinding it out. And then after that, I immediately went on a college tour on my own, doing an hour, you know. And then the final Harry Potter movie was out. So all the kids were, were coming to, to see the guy from Harry Potter. I just didn't expect <laughs> I told you, it's, you know, it's a door opener, isn't it? It's crazy. Even a, a role that you're not. You can't. You're not really recognisable in. It's it's crazy. It's a crazy thing. They knew the role, and um, so I quickly worked out they wanted photographs. So I give away all these photographs at the end, and that was more important to them than the jokes. I think they're all on eBay now, <laughs> but they love an accent, don't they? Over there, the the Americans go go mad for the the British accent. Well, what's good about? Well, yeah, they they think it's more intelligent for some reason. I don't know how that works, but uh, <laughs> but what, for comedy purposes, it's very good because if you do anything slightly edgy. Um, you can get away with it easily. Uh, and so other comics uh, might not, you know, if you've got an American accent. I've kept, I've kept it. I thought there's no way I'm going to change my accent. No, 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 no. But it's very good for comedy. Um, and, and I do slow it down, not because anyone's stupid. It's just because uh, I think they have to process the, the accent and it takes them yeah. a while to, to, yeah. To, to, yeah. Yeah, to, I mean, I suppose that the Pythons kind of paved the way, didn't they, over, over there as well, you know? Well, well, certainly Los Angeles is nothing new about an America, an English accent. Mm. But when I was performing Vegas last week, um, on two separate occasions, people came into the dressing room after the show and said, uh, he, 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 is, that, is his accent real? Is he real? <laughs> so, and I realised then that if you're not in Los Angeles, you know, and you go out into the, the regions, then it's a whole different ball game. But but you have to speak slow as they won't they won't get the important you know comedy words. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot, I suppose a lot of us us Brits kind of do tend to speak quite quickly anyway. You know, but I mean, I, I suppose you do slow it down a bit when you're in with people that are, have a different uh, different accent, maybe. Yeah, it's just it's just comedy instinct. Um, 
but that, that definitely worked for me. And then I'm also, you know, if someone says, if, if it's a very difficult gig, I always used to slow down if it was a difficult gig. If there were hecklers in, just just wait. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and that, that I kind of apply that everywhere nowadays. Um, so, it, yeah, so, so I came here in 2008 and, um, and it was all going quite well. You know, I'd do these tours and things. Mm. And then I settled in Los Angeles and got an agent, um, I got an agent. And, and then I'd do, you know, small roles in TV shows like Californication, mm. Chuck, uh, a bunch of shows and, and it was nice to, to do that it's a different I think comedy is great but it's less emotional and so you can explore uh, the emotional side of yeah. creativity and that is fascinating and I've found a whole new thing to, to explore although this, the stuff I tend to get booked for you know there isn't time to do an emotional arc but you can certainly it's different to jokes definitely it's a different model yeah, no, I mean, I love, I love it when you know my favourite comedians or you know whatever turn up these do these little tiny guest roles. You might only be in one episode for a couple of scenes. I mean, recently you did one of my favourites, the Mysterious Benedict Society. Absolutely, oh, love. oh I love that show so much. Um, wow. Great ensemble cast in it as well, and Tony Hale. I mean, what an absolute legend! You know, playing the two, yeah. playing the two, <laughs> two brothers, two totally different people. And Kristen Shaw yeah. as well, you know. So I mean, that must have been yeah. a great thing to great thing to be part of. Yeah, again, it's you know, I've done a few of those, and and stupidly, I you know, I turned I turned a couple down. I, this show called Westworld, I was offered to do that, and I I, I accepted. It was great, but um, when it came to the filming day, I'd, uh, they had to change the day. I was going back to England to do, I think it was a corporate or a couple of gigs there, mm. and I couldn't let them down in England, yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, they changed the day on me again for the shoot and I couldn't do it. So I got booked for that and I uh, had to turn it down. And I've done that a couple of times stupidly. Mm. And um, But you can't do it all, can you? If you're a stand-up, you've got to go. You've just got to do what you've got to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that, it so... must be great, though. You, you know, you want to obviously keep things, keep variety for yourself. You know, if you're doing all these different things, you're doing a bit of acting. You know, as you say, you were in Vegas last week doing stand-up. You know, it's great that you've got, you know, to, to pardon the pun, but all these strings to your bow. You know that you can you can dip into all these different things. It hasn't always been like that, Paula. So um, I was yeah I was working quite a lot up until 2017, mm. and then that culminated in a Super Bowl ad, which played two parts in it. Uh, and I was in this uh, scenario where I was an old um, like a sort of Anglo-Saxon soldier, and we were going to help Humpty Dumpty had fallen off the wall. <laughs> oh, he's cracked up. We're the soldiers that put him back together, and yeah, so yeah. on. And it was for, I think it was TurboTax, which is a tax company here that does your taxes. And um, it was in that. Uh, and then that was on the Super Bowl and everyone saw it and so on. And then mm. a few weeks mm. later, catastrophe struck and it all came to an abrupt end. All right, well, was... 2017, I mean, what a year. What a year for you. I mean, there's this huge, life-changing car accident you were in. Broken bones, ribs, collapsed lungs, fractures, broken neck. Um, I remember seeing your updates from your hospital bed at the time you were kind of updating people and it was, you know, it was unbelievable, you know, kind of what had happened and what you were going through at the time. Yeah. You were, you were a year in recovery. Uh, perhaps more than that. But yeah. um, 
Uh, yeah, 31 bones. Um, a lot of them are compound fractures, so multiple breaks. And, um, or, you know, uh, I've got over it now, but I, I didn't used to be able to talk about it. But no, it's all right now. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I know what you mean. The lungs, yeah, the, the whole thorax was crushed and, um, and my hand was detached. Uh, it was still hanging on by the skin, but they okay. managed to reattach it and, incredibly. And this is um, all I was doing was um, I keep chicken. So I, my other big passion is growing food, um, self-sufficiency. Your tomatoes uh, are very famous. Tomatoes, yeah, absolutely. And um, <laughs> I got big into that during COVID. But but before I had my accident, I was we were getting into it. Yeah. And um, so that day I was just going to get some chicken wire for the chickens to make a new coop. And um, I found a scrapyard that sold it 70 miles away. Mm. And it involved a bit of a drive. And I collected it. It was all fine. And um, on the way back, the GPS said a new route found 10 minutes faster. So I jumped on that. And oh, then eight wow. minutes later, it took me up on this road called the Angeles Crest, which is a mountain thing. You know, like you get in Sheffield, like the Snake Pass. Or much yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah. Than, you know, sheer drops on uh, I went up there and eight minutes later, I was hit by a Dodge Ram head on. And um, Dodge Ram, you know, even the name has gravity. And um, uh, as a, and, uh, I was hit and um, I was driving a Honda Crumple. I, 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 that's how I tell the story, Honda Crumple. And then um, I didn't know anything about I don't remember anything that happened at all, nothing, except I do remember coming to on the highway for a brief second. I had this out of body thing. And I found myself looking down on the scene from above and I could see wow. bones sticking out my leg and, and my arm was kind of behind me. And I thought, there's a show in this. And um, <laughs> uh, there's a show, definitely going to be a show in this. And, uh, and I, uh, there was airlifted right to, to the hospital. And the, wow. at the hospital, that the surgeon recognised me from a comedy club a few weeks before. <laughs> he did this operation and he said, unfortunately, it's unlikely you'll ever play your bass again. And I said, well, that's all right. I couldn't play it in the first place. <laughs> um, uh, but the moral of the story is, if ever you need chicken wire, make sure you buy it locally. Oh, definitely. Uh, oh, my God. So I did this story and uh, I did this show about it. And then I went back to Edinburgh in 2018. And I, I just, that's all I had to do. I couldn't play my bass. I couldn't do any gigs. I couldn't get there. Nothing. Couldn't drive a car. So I did get to Edinburgh. It was p perfect for me, Edinburgh, because <laughs> I could just stay in one place and do this thing every night. And and I called the show um, from deadpan to bedpan. And then at the end of the show, because it was the free fringe, I would hold out the bedpan. <laughs> They'd fill it up with my medical expenses, which is oh, kind man. of pretty I mean, God, that's another thing entirely. Like, medical expenses. You hear all these stories about, you know, even people having babies in the US and it's, you know, you have to take out a mortgage to have a child kind of thing. But the, the bill came uh, just for the ICU, six weeks in the ICU, the, just the, they called it room and board, $652,000. Of course, you do a deal with them, you, don't, you never pay that. But I'd never seen this before. And I did have insurance. I had Screen Actors Guild, fortunately, because yeah, yeah. I've done I've done. A and that, thank God, that that oh did God. cover me. And then I fell out of uh, Screen Actors Guild because I was no longer working. And I got this thing called Obamacare, and that paid for my subsequent rehabilitation. Uh, but I did have, I was probably out of pocket, you know, 50 grand plus, 70 grand 
And, you know, we had to, I didn't mortgage the house or anything, but I did have to kind of scramble it together. And every every penny I'd saved mm. from acting, it all went on that. It wiped me, wiped me out. And then my wife, Laura, uh, had to go back to work. She became a tax preparer. because She was managing all my stuff before. Yeah, yeah. And she became a tax preparer. And, and um, you know, and things changed, completely changed. And she was incredible. And I realised she, she... She got me through it really, and um, and we stayed in this house, and and then the the fires came, the Los Angeles fires, and the whole place was full of smoke, and I was in a wheelchair, and it was it was kind of exciting at the same time. <laughs> um, but I thought I honestly thought I'd never work again, and I thought, well, yeah. that's when I got got into gardening big time. So I had these three years off. You said one year it was actually three years. It's one one year of proper recovery, yeah. and then I'm still still just very psychologically affected for at mm. least another say i say two years yeah i was kind yeah. of paralyzed you know uh mentally it mentally is definitely the worst thing because you know the body's incredible how it recovers but but it was difficult so you know for example you know i'm not scared of driving but i might be scared of other things like if i see a motorbike that that makes me scared and i don't know what happened but there was something to do with motorbikes involved mm. and uh no one knows what happened uh, they took the skid marks on the road, and you know, I didn't get blame or anything. But the, 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 it was a it was a road where there were lots of motorbikes all the time. Joy, yeah. not joy, but you know these guys that go very fast, go on these day trips. And I was in the middle of all that. It was ugly. Whatever happened, I don't know. Yeah, but, no, I mean, um, the, bra- the brain is funny, isn't it? Sometimes you know, sometimes your brain totally wipes it out, and you'll you'll have no memory of anything you literally you know you're one minute you're driving and the next minute you're you're waking up in a hospital bed you know what i mean it's, it's yeah that's what it was bizarre yeah, how, the, how the brain yeah. kind of works in that way i think it uh, blocks out what you don't need to know i'm, I'm relieved that I, mm. I, i've i've since met a member of scientology just who happens to be a neighbor years ago he's gone now and, I, and he he was also a insurance guy for car accidents he was telling me what i should do with it. <laughs> and then he also said i could unlock my memory and I said, oh, well, how do I no. do that? How do I, I don't think I want to do that. He said, you can. He said, just read this book. And he tried to put L. Ron Hubbard's book my way. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> so, I mean, did it, you know, did it make you reevaluate your your life and, you know, what your 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 purpose was? I mean, a, a, a near-death experience like that, do you know what I mean? It, it, would, cha- it would change the, it would change anybody. So, I mean, have you, have you did you sort of reevaluate? Your existence, I, I, I certainly did, and I, it left me with no fear of, you know, my ultimate demise. I certainly dealt with that one. Um, it made me very uh, appreciative of everything around me, especially gardening. Mm. And it, it also made me realise that, you know, when you worry about your career and things like that, it's really not important at all. And I think life is way more interesting than a gig that you might not get booked for or something. Mm. And so I just thought, well, it really, none of it matters anymore. And, I, and now I quite enjoy stand-up again. I enjoy all of it. I just, you know, if I get booked on a TV show, I enjoy that. I just I take it all and just I'm very, very happy to be doing anything, really. Yeah, um, it's like, like hitting a reset button, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. Um, like I say, I don't want to be defined, you know. As, no, no, you know, no, exactly, exactly. I did this show and a lot of people come out with sort of broken limbs and things and they'd sit on the front row and and that was very nice they did that and they, I think it was some support and I think it also helped them mm. and the show was basically you know how you can recover and what you can do and so on 
and your family and who can help and and what you can take from it. And they they come and see these people who had some pretty weird injuries. Like one guy came to see the show and he was run over by a tractor, his own tractor that ran down the road. And he was uh, so he came and he's fine now. And and you've got people that had some really interesting things happen to them, some lots of interesting. One one poor little kid had jumped off a bridge and survived basically. And but he was fine now and he's dealing with it. Mm. Um, and then I did a few hospital gigs and things like that. National health. I was I was pushing, trying to push the story about the national health in the, within the show. And it was really really felt like I was doing something useful, you know. Mm. Uh, and. Um, but I don't you can want only to be talk about your own experience. You can only talk about your own experiences, can't you? I mean, it's the best place. To get. Know, like well, my point is, I don't want to be defined as the guy that you know got smashed up. I'm, I'm uh, and so I never mention it now. I do yeah. have a, like a one minute bit in my act about it, but so mainly it's, it's just let's move on now. Um, and I've got that in my life, you know, experiences. Yeah. So I mean, well, we we talked earlier about your, you know, all these different strings to your bow. Um, do you do you have a favourite aspect? Of what you do, if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Would you would you choose well, a stand up? The, the weird thing about the accident, what it made me realise that not working for two years uh, didn't bother me. Hmm. You know, it didn't, but because I, I did have, I did have my fruit trees to, uh, you know, and I'd be hopping around out there, and it, and I was completely happy doing that. Uh, and then when it, when I did get some work, I was equally happy to accept it. If you see what yeah, I mean. yeah. Um, uh, and now I'm pretty, pretty cool with everything. Um, you know, uh, I still write jokes. And, um, um, but anyway, after, so I did two years, like in a wheelchair pretty much or a year and a half. And then, you know, psychologically not being able to go back to work, certainly mm. couldn't drive yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And then, then it did get a lot better. Um, but then of course COVID came. So I had three years out from my working and then COVID came for another two years, 18 mm. months. Mm. But then what happened then? I, I was getting Zoom gigs offered, uh, which was, was perfect for me because I couldn't yeah, really yeah, leave yeah. the house. And I didn't have the confidence. So I was doing gigs at home uh, while everyone else was also doing Zoom gigs. But I, I really latched onto it as something I could just have. And I was so grateful. And I was also doing things like saying happy birthday to Harry Potter fans on Cameo and things like that, just trying to yeah, survive. Yeah. And, and I and, uh and slowly, then COVID lifted, and I was better then. It did, it did take a good few years. Yeah. Well, it was nice that it gave you that time to sort of, you know, recuperate and kind of get yourself back up to what you are now kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, and now I'm pretty much back to where I was before the accident, I think, mm. uh, in stand-up terms. Like, my persona isn't really – like, for example, I had a quite a long time working. I had to re-breathe. Like, breathing was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And – but being an actor, you learn these breathing things, and I had to kind of retrain myself to. I couldn't finish the sentence without running out of breath, mm. and now mm. I'm able to do everything like that. Now I can even sing again and stuff like that. So, uh, and the biggest um, compliment to me now is if I actually get booked for something, they don't. They have no knowledge of any accident. I haven't got a limp. I never even had a cast. I can't believe it, but I wasn't in a cast. It was all metal. Yeah totally golf club leg but um no cast whatsoever and, and no limp although when you get tired you know i have to i still have problems if i'm honest i'm seeing a surgeon today one more time for my yeah. toes that are still my toes are still broken and kind of like that so 
they're going to try and flatten it. I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe they have to re-break them. So it's a final surgery uh, around the corner, I think, and then that's done. I know, you know, to, to have walked to, you know, to, to be as you are now is inc incredible, you know. It is. I, pro I probably, should, probably shouldn't be here. And I, I think, it, uh, you know, it is a survival situation. Mm. And it, it's nice to come through that. Um, you know, at times during the hospital, I just was willing to give up. I think, well, that's the end now. Because some of the procedures I had to have, it, I just could not face anymore. And it was every day. You know, when you get your lungs drained out. And, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I can't tell you. But, I mean, the performer, uh, you, you know, the performer was obviously in you, you know, reporting from your hospital, hospital bed as you were. Well, the only thing I had to do, oh, was, yeah, yeah. Got, got back from the hospital. And, I was, and, and now by then I was walking. So I would do my little walk, very short walks with my little dog, who was also in the accident. And I just started, in my head, just going through it. And then I started writing it down. And it was no great shakes or anything, but it was, it was very chronological, just what happened. Nothing, no special angle on it. And I did it PowerPoint, you know. Um, but I had no base. Uh, it was um, a huge, huge relief to be through it. Yeah. Um, the, the dog was in the car with you at the time. The little dog was. Oh, and the my. dog, we got the dog from a rescue. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of years before. And ironically, they, the, the accident happened and he went back to the same prison, dog prison, that we got him from. Uh, um, and unfortunately, he, he, I know he bit the cop and the paramedic, but they were very good about it and they understood. And, it, and my wife eventually found him in one of the, well, the oh. same one we got him from, eventually oh. found him by calling round. And he he's fine. He doesn't really like a car trip, but... Um, so me and him, we're pretty much uh, stuck together the whole time. Home birds, your home birds now. Well, we're just together all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah. it would it would connect anybody, wouldn't it? You know, going through, going through something like that. But you, I mean, as you said, you're just back from some some gigs uh, a week in Vegas, um, mm. and also as a uh, you've just been in a new film, uh, Eighty for Brady, which is doing amazing things over in the US at the moment. Yeah. So. Um... Uh, well, what I did was I, another part of my life. I thought, what am I going to do now? I can't do comedy anymore. One of the things I looked at was um, doing. Uh, I really wanted to get back on set, you know, on hmm. movies and TV. Uh, and I, you know, it's nothing I could do. I just couldn't really do anything. So, but I did do some extra work because I thought, well, I could probably do this. And yeah. I had my SAG card, which is the Screen Actors Guild. Yeah. And obviously, if you get books as an extra, you still get like accounts towards your pension and things like this, you know, mm -hmm. social security and medical and things like that. And it's a legitimate way of, it's a legitimate job. And I think you can, you can do extra work if you've got no ego. So I certainly don't have an ego. And um, I was able to get back on set and see Eddie Murphy, whatever he was, who was ever in it. I did a ton of movies. I did it for about eight months. And um, it just made me think, oh, my gosh, I think I'm okay. I think I can probably come back now. And I slowly started getting a few little small auditions. And then I think the extra work gave me confidence when I started booking again. Mm. And um, cut to, to, you know, now. Yes, I'm in this movie called 80 for Brady. Admittedly, it's a very a small part, but it's a, it's a one-liner in the movie I'm down to. But um, the whole point about this was uh, Age of Brady is a movie about the Super Bowl, uh, about these uh, octogenarians that go to see their hero, Tom Brady, 
who was playing at the Super Bowl, and it was set in 2017. That is the year I had my Super Bowl ad, with my commercial, which was out, yeah. and then followed by the accident. Yeah. And then the doctor said I'd never play the bass again. And now here I am, five years later, in a movie playing my bass. Um, I'm like the quartet leader. And... Um, and Lily Tomlin gets up yeah. and tries to, uh, she tries to do karaoke. I say, man, we're not doing karaoke. Anyway, they cut the scene basically. Um, they cut the scene right down, but it's still a, it's still a handy one-liner. And it, and um, it, it, they cut the scene down because I don't think that part was greatly written, and there were technical problems with a big part of it, and they just couldn't use it. Um, and I was in, in that bit. However, I was in another bit, which they've kept in. So it's, look, I don't care. Yeah. It's fine. And that's so mostly the old CV, isn't it? I mean, Jane Fonda, Sally Field. I mean, you know, it's the, the female greats of, uh, you know, of the, of the movie world. And there's five Oscar winners in it. Yeah. But it's, it's a good fun film. And, and um, uh, But it's special for me because I'm playing the bass when they said I never would again. You know, and it's... Although I've got to be honest, in a movie you mime, of course, I'm not actually. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then um, all good, all good, Paul. Yeah. So, is there, is, are there any projects you're working on at the moment that you've got you've got lined up in the pipeline? I'm doing loads of gigs. I'm, I'm editing. I'm doing loads of admin. I'm editing a video, trying to write sort of comeback stand-up thing, which I'm putting together. Uh, I've just got to get on and do that. More gigs, more gardening, and, and a spot of acting, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, do you do you get home much? Do you, do you come home much, or is it a diff your life's there now kind of thing? I did. I, I did had a bit of business there uh, about six months ago, and then before that, it was two thousand eighteen. Uh, I've got um, two grown up kids there, but they come here every summer. They're still coming here this year, so they're all piling in in May, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, uh, one of them's trying to be a lawyer. And, and, oh. and he's doing well. I think he wants to do it here in New York. So mm. I'm sure I'll see him living here one day. Um, yeah, and I, I, I haven't been to work since 2018. Uh, I don't know if I'll get back one day. No plans right now. Mm. But I'm still very fond of the place. Um, you're, you're in Ireland, aren't you? I am in Ireland. I am in Ireland. And the new king. The new king is a, a big fan of yours, isn't he? Uh, king Charles is a, a big fan of your work. So I did the Royal Variety a few times, yeah, and he he took an interest because he's a cello player as well, um, amateur cellist. So he, I think he liked my act for that reason. But yeah, um, several times he would book me for various shows. There's one I did for the uh, when the first day Camilla met the Queen was at Highgrove, and there were thirteen crowned heads of Europe at the event. Uh, it was absolutely bizarre, but it was just a barbecue. But there was still <laughs> And I had to break the ice between the, the Majesties and, and Camilla. I mean, it was quite strange, really. And the, the, I was told, look, the Queen's going to be sat in the front row. Do not look at her. She's seen every comedian there is. She will not laugh. So uh, do not engage with her. Anyway, quite quickly, she was uh, giving it... Uh, she's such a good... She was such a cool person. <laughs> she will not laugh. <laughs> but when she laughed and clapped, the, all the rest of them joined in. And uh, and it, it turned out to be a good gig, and she made it like that. If I'm honest, um, yeah, everyone no, was there. Though. She had an amazing sense of humour. You know, it's uh, a lot of people have said she was a pro professional down to the core. And uh, yeah, the, the kids were Harry and uh, what's his name was there, and um, they're all there. And uh, I did a number of these 
gigs for for Prince Charles, and uh, and then I, I think the media just sort of penned me as the Prince Charles's favourite comedian. For yeah, the, yeah. Very short period, because Spike Milligan had died by then, so but because um, he was his other favourite. You, you took over you know, Spike Milligan. <laughs> I don't know if that is true, but the media put that out, and I know that gigs put it in their blurb, and uh, yeah, I ran on that for a while. Um, so you never know yeah, where you're no, the, the king, the king's favorite, you know. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> I <can't. laughs> but no, I, I was also going to say, uh, if I ever went back, I would consider Dublin because I absolutely love Ireland, and my mm. wife's got a lot of Irish, and she loves it too. And uh, either Ireland or Scotland, one or the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, whole, the whole Brexit thing at the moment in the UK, it's just, it's just a bit messy. Yeah, you yeah. know. Um, but we got, we got we got the same thing here too with the, hmm. the whole Trump the Trump years. Oh thing. man, I mean that must have been oh horrific living through the Trump administration. Well, yeah, but I had to live through Brexit and the Trump. Well, oh yeah, I suppose so. That's what you get for having a, a leg in each, you know, in, in each camp. But um, uh, yeah, I think we're getting through it. I don't, I don't know. It's strange times, isn't it? it? Really is. Yeah, no, it really is. about music now um so have, have there been any big music loves in your life be it a band or an artist i was obsessed with early rockabilly uh, and early elvis gene vincent mm -hmm. uh, i mean gene vincent he was the guy with the black leather suit that would sing on stage very charismatic sort of soulful lonely figure and um and i, I think in tribute to him i had leather tuxedo made once and i did that with a raw variety show and I, I wore that for a while, and it's, that's kind of my influence there. And obviously, the stand-up bass uh, was um, very much part of it. Come from my rockabilly years, um, so I missed out on the on, on punk and all that kind of stuff. Uh, weirdly, I've since toured with the Stranglers. I've become friends with them, um, uh, so I, I did miss out. But um, lately, I'm I suppose I, I my roots have kind of re-emerged. So I, I'm very big fan of. So do you know about the um, the outlaw country movement, uh, the outlaws of country? So you're talking Willie Nelson, yeah, all from yeah. Tennessee, Texas, mm. and uh, there's, there's David Allen Coe, uh, Willie Nelson, um, uh, John Prime, and I'm really into that. Outlaws of uh, country. Mm. Um, now here I live in this place called Tahunga, California. My re my recent absolute obsession is an album called Dharma Land. Dharma Land is an album by written by someone called Eden Arbez. Mm -hmm. So around this area here is called Tahunga, full of canyons and very atmospheric. It does look like Mars, hence the UFO sightings uh, abundantly around here. Very strange. Uh, but there's some canyons to and there's some very interesting hikes. And one time I was walking there and came upon, uh, in this clearing, a, a cob oven, you know, like a brick pizza oven looking thing. And it was uh, made, handmade. And I asked a local historian what that was about. And he said it was built by this person called Eden Arbez. Now, Eden Arbez was around in the 1940s and he wore white robes. He had a long beard. He was a prototype hippie 20 right. years before the hippies. Mm -hmm. And he was a songwriter living as an itinerant. He lived under the Hollywood sign. and, and he, lived, he camped there. 
he camped here in Tahunga for many, many years, for decades, when he wasn't in Hollywood trying to sell his songs. And he would write these songs and try and sell them. And one time, Nat King Cole was performing at the Ambassador's Theatre in 19, late 40s. Mm-hmm. And he took one song and he tried to sell it to Nat King Cole and they, they told him to go away. And he gave the song to the doorman who then passed it on to Nat King Cole, who took a look at it. And he thought, oh, I'm going to do it live in my set, this song. And he did it, performed it. And then he recorded it and it became a number one. And that song was called Nature Boy. Oh, Nature my God. And that very song, famous song. Red recorded 5,000. I'm glad you know it because a lot of people haven't heard of it when I try to explain the story. So, so Aidan Arbiz uh, then created this incredible song. He didn't want the money because he, he liked, he didn't want, his home was outside. Anywhere he was was his home. Hmm. That was his and he took a lot of, uh, you know, Zen uh, and, and, you know, Oriental mysticism, and he was into all that. Um, and that came fed into his music, and he wrote these songs. But he also got an album deal then after this song, and he and the album came out, and it was called Eden's Island, and it sold 300 copies. But he was very proud of it, mm. and uh, it didn't get anywhere, but he carried a copy with him all the time. He lived here until the 90s, and he died when he was 85. Now, Dharmaland is the album that he wrote, which was lost forever, but he put it into the Library of Congress. Now, don't ask me what that is, but the Library of Congress is where you can put information and leave it there, and it's recorded. He logged it with the Library of Congress, and someone who's doing a documentary about Eden Arbus now found, somehow accessed this, and was given permission to put a band together and re-release this music. And that song, that album is called Dharmaland. Wow. And it's the most incredible album I think I've ever heard. And I've listened to it more than any other album ever. And it's full of, it's called, it, it, it's an exotic, exotica jazz kind of rhythm to it. If you know what that is, it, that came out of the 50s, mm. almost like from Hawaii. You know, there's a lot of Hawaiian kind yeah. of slide yeah. guitar in it, beautiful rhythms and percussion and sort of psychedelia in it. He was a print prototype psychedelic so the Beatles loved him no one knows about you know but the Beatles wore their white stuff because of him wow. and they uh, he's a, just a huge influence on on the whole hippie movement the whole uh, beardy thing and that's mm. him Eden Arbez and the album Dharmaland you know it's there on Spotify and I'd love to hear what you think and what your listeners think because to, yeah. me, to me it's, it's fabulous it really just really relaxing and there's always something new in the album. So that's my answer to your question. Yeah, no, it's always great to find, you know, I'm quite I'm quite eclectic anyway. Uh, like Nature Boy, I, I know it's Robert Palmer did a, a version of Nature Boy a few years ago. So I know his version of it. Oh, wow. That's cool if he did it. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, he did his own kind of his own kind of take on it. Um, I think he did it live on some TV show or something. And it's... <laughs> You know, I didn't know too much about it before I'd seen his version of it. Amazing. Wow. I'll look that one up. I haven't heard that version. Um, I mean, Nature Boy is not like his other stuff, if I'm honest. Mm. You know, um, but he certainly, you know, he was he, he he could write a pop song if he had to. But And he did sell a few songs to people, but he made his living from that. He didn't want the money, but they still gave it to him somehow. And... Um, you know, like he'd assign all the royalties to other people, to other uh, Nature Boys, because Nature Boys was a movement around mm. Los Angeles at the time. And I think they all got some money off that. 
who basically lived outside. Is, is yeah, I mean that Nat King yeah. Cole story is it's it's crazy, isn't it? You know that it's it's beautiful. It really is, and it all happened around here. And you can, you know, I still go up there. No one walks there, and I I keep thinking of I'll find some of his stuff there, and because he lived right up to nineteen ninety five, I think or three, in that canyon, mm. and um, uh, so I got I got a couple of tomato. Um, cages out I, I found them on the floor up there you know you grow tomatoes in them so I was hoping they would be eating our bezes <laughs> <laughs> I mean is it, is, it good, uh, is it a good climate for tomato growing yes it's eating our eight fruit and vegetables he grew bananas and all that kind of thing so yes here is perfect for bananas mangoes lychee uh, and I'm obsessed with rare tropical fruit and I can't believe I'm able to do it I always had a lemon tree when I was living in London I used to try and preserve it and try and get it through and it never had a lemon on it so it's kind of uh my dream come true really yeah maybe you need to go down the market garden route you know start i don't think i want to sell it i mean we've got bees we've got honey we had plenty of honey and, and we gave it all back to the bees this year because it was um a tough year for them. but mm. we've had plenty of honey and we love the bees and uh and it's it's absolutely you know i, I don't want to sell it well, just give it to me if they want some honey. Yeah, so I'll swap. Yeah. So my neighbour swaps avocados and we yeah. give them honey and eggs. Lots of eggs, which is pretty good right now because they're expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, would you have been a gig goer in your back back in the day? Would you have uh, been a been a gig goer? What would have been the best band you you would have seen live? Yeah, I, I've been to loads of gigs. I mean, I was, you know, I, I saw all kinds of people. I saw Phil Collins way back. I used to try and. I watched him and watched him with Charlie. All of Charlie Spencer, Di's brother, went to see that with him. And I, mm. um, I went to a Snoop Dogg concert in um, uh, in Brixton. Uh, it was probably the last thing. It was a long time ago. Um, but my relationship to music is just quite personal, so I don't need to go to a gig to enjoy it. Mm. Um, no, no, I, I don't feel I need to do that. I'm just quite happy putting my jam on and listening to what, what's going on. Yeah, and I always find it quite, uh, you know, people that, what they do for a living, there's music involved in what they do. And they're, people's relationships with music, as a thing, is, is, always sort of fascinates me. Well, I think that's very true with comedy. Tons of comedians and musicians as well. Explain that. I think it's something to do with the timing, maybe. And certainly the way you think, it's very disciplined, like a joke has timing, it has sections to it. Mm, yeah. it I think uh, language is another thing similar to music. Uh, I love learning. I'm learning Spanish at the moment. I've been doing that for a year and a half. That's also similar. Um, these disciplines, uh, I think comics have all these things. I mean, look at Eddie Izzard. He tries to do his show in all these different languages to show yeah. off a bit. Yeah, yeah. But good luck to him, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about Emo Phillips earlier. I mean, what is emo, what's Emo like in real life? <laughs> what's he like in real life? Uh, very sort of studious. So he, he he researches so heavily on everything he does, and um, uh, I, I did see him. No, I think I, I haven't seen him for a few years now. But um, yeah, he he's very um, so he he knows every film from every genre from every era, uh, and so he you know, if, if I met up with him, we'd have to go to the festival hall and watch some obscure clown film from the forties or something. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so he he's, he knows his stuff, and he yeah. writes. Them. Again, he's one of those performers, isn't he? Yeah. That you once you've seen once you've seen him, you'll you'll remember him for you know just. 
I don't know if he's done UK recently, but no, uh, I don't think he's done anything in the UK for a few years anyway. No, he was part of all the comics um, careers were wrapped up with the Americans. So Robin Williams would be at the comedy store a lot, mm. and Stephen Wright also, I and mean, they were there. You know, it's just fabulous to have this opportunity. And I've always felt we were hand in hand with the US. You know, I really have. Yeah, I mean, even uh, people like Mike Myers. I mean, Mike Myers kind of started in the UK, didn't he, as well? Yes, he 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 was. He had a double act with. Um, oh, Neil Malarkey. Neil Malarkey. Neil Malarkey, yes, of course. Mm. So he would uh, do, do, do shows in tiny rooms in pubs with him, you know. And it's, it's success is always going to be there, you know. As soon as you step into show business, you're always going to be surrounded by people that become very very successful. Mm. And it might not be your year yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You, you get, you've got to get used to that. Yeah. But you find a niche, you find a way to contribute, you find where you fit in the the huge tapestry of the thing. Yeah, no, it's the luck of the draw, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's a total, it's total pot luck, isn't it? If you sometimes, but if you, so long as you've got to be in the right place, right? You've got to put yeah, yourself yeah. in the right time. But you know, if I'm honest, I would probably need, you know, you need to be in Los Angeles available because this stuff comes out like that. Eighty for Brady that you mentioned that was mm. very last minute. And they needed a bass player and they, they needed someone who could deliver a line. And they watched my act and they thought, yeah, this will do. <laughs> You're doing thought, yourself down, Jim. <laughs> I, I was worried they were going to make me do it in American because I thought, no, this won't work. Even though it's got the word ma'am in it, I, I, I don't want to do it. I want it to just be me. Yeah. It's part of my, my story coming back from, uh, you know, coming back to fitness was... Very important to me, so I did. I'm just going to do Jim Tavray in this. And yeah, yeah. So you you got a just total British accent. I'm not gonna not gonna change for anybody. Yes, <laughs> yes. But in the, often you do, I do these auditions over here, and you know I, I I'm doing it in English. And I'm thinking in English, but the line isn't like that, and it's so it's it's difficult sometimes with the grammar, you know. Um, mm. So I have, I have to find I have to find a way of doing it. And, yeah, uh, the, the best stuff I enjoy is just doing just over the top characters that just get us. If and then then there's never a problem with grammar and dialect. There's never a problem if if you're in character. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, a, a good a good quirky character in a in a TV, oh, TV show is. As I said, I love seeing you in the in the Benedict Society oh. <laughs> in the bowels of a ship. Was just uh, yeah, uh, great, great to see you popping up in that, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Jim. It's been an absolute pleasure.